Hey guys, and welcome to episode 54 of Underrated, a show where we talk about great films that just don't get enough love. I'm your haunted and sleep-deprived host, Gabriel Green, and I am joined by my co-host, who if genre conventions or any indicator, is probably not long for this world. James Hamrick, how's it going? I'm pretty good, how are you? Not bad. Though again, you know, if we're taking the logic of the remake uh, rather than the original, you might actually have a shot here. One can hope. And uh, today we are joined by a special guest. He's a terrifying specter who haunts both uh, Facebook message boards and our dreams. It's uh, Eric Krasinski. Wow, what an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I fumbled again on your name for some reason. I don't know. Something That's about okay. your name just keeps messing me up. <laughs> Maybe the 12 letters. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Underrated. Thank you. Good to be here. All right. And uh, so this week uh, is your pick, James. What are we looking at tonight? We are looking at the 2010 remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nice. Uh, and Erica, before we go on, I want, I want to give you a int- uh, chance to just you know introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and what you might be up to online. Uh, yeah, no, my name's, uh, as you said, Eric Skrzynski. I am a um, social media coordinator for a auto group in Hemet, California. Um, I've been working in kind of the media field doing uh, documentaries, short videos, um, commercials for the last uh, four or five years now. And uh, I love horror movies and discussing them and debating with the hosts of the NRA podcast on Facebook pretty much every day. So that's yep. me. <laughs> Not an exaggeration. <laughs> All right. And before we move on, I'd like to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And before we get into the main review, uh, have either of you seen any cool movies this week that you want to talk about? Uh, let's start with you, Eric. Um, well, I, uh, Shudder, the streaming service for horror movies, just released the uh, original Universal uh, monster movies. So um, I was checking out Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein for the first time and uh, wasn't disappointed by those. Um, I love Boris Karloff and the Mummy, so seeing him as Frankenstein was, uh, was really cool. Um, I get why they have the love and admiration that they they do um the I, I watched a ton of movies so i'll just hit the next two that were really good um i watched annabelle creation uh for the first time i missed it in theaters and was kind of blown away that the sequel to a kind of subpar horror movie was as good as <laughs> creation was um uh, really strong direction and one of the scarier movies that's come out uh recently um that's the then, uh, M- mike flanagan one right uh <sighs> You know I what? think it's I actually David Sandberg. Oh, yeah, 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 David, yeah, David yeah. Sandberg, the guy that did Lights Out. Um, Shazam. He directed it. Um, and then the other movie that caught me off guard is probably the best movie I've seen um, this Halloween season was Paranorman, a stop-motion movie from 2012. Um, really cool animated style, um, really interesting plot, and it really hit kind of all the... Um, basically, it was, it was Toy Story for Eric. Um, it was just a great you know, kind of horror throwback <laughs> with a really neat stop motion and cool character design. Um, and Gabriel, I see now looking at on letterbox, you give it two stars, but we'll talk about that at a different time. <laughs> yeah. So. No, no comment. <laughs> um, but Annabelle creation really um, just from beginning to end was a really good kind of roller coaster ride of terror as you would. Nice. And uh, what about you, James? Uh, it hasn't been a whole lot uh, for me this week. I finished my Star Wars marathon with The Force Awakens, uh, and I loved it just as ever. Always be a huge apologist for that movie. Uh, and 
fact that people aren't unanimously praising Kylo Ren as one of the best villains of the series still just upsets me. Um, Absolutely. I agree. He is so good. Preach. Easily just in one film matches almost every other character in the series in terms of depth. Um, and then I rewatched Stranger Things gearing up for season two, which I'm incredibly excited about. Uh, really, even though I'm not a child of the 80s, I still feel nostalgic for them. I, ha- I have three older uh, siblings who are all born in the 80s, and I feel like they kind of carried that over. And so, in a weird way, I'm a child. I like to claim that I'm a child of the 80s. I'm sure other people would hate me for it. <laughs> Um, so I rewatched that, uh, and loved it as much as ever. And then the, the last thing I watched this week was, um, last night we almost watched Ouija Origin of Evil because I heard that that was actually really good. Um, but I kind of wanted to get the full experience of watching that <laughs> after seeing the original. So I, I said to just like, well, before we can watch this, we really should watch the first one. So we watched the original Ouija last night to see if it was as bad as everyone said. And it somehow lives up to its reputation. It, and I'm glad I saw it because there's actually like watching that one night and then Nightmare on Elm Street the next night is kind of like how to not make a scary movie, how to make a <laughs> scary movie. There's so many different parallels you can make between the two. Uh, but Ouija was just terrible. The acting was wooden and like high school amateur level um the plot was absolutely ridiculous the movie spends almost no time setting anything up it feels like they're making up the rules of the film as they go and then breaking them anyways uh it's just like characters don't react to situations i mean i i know that like the horror genre kind of has built up a reputation of people just making stupid decisions and not reacting realistically to situations, but it's another level here. It's just a really, really bad movie. Um, and so now, rewatching Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm like, oh, okay, so this is what this looks like done right. Um, so if anything, it was actually probably helpful for tonight's review. Nice. And so is that all? Yeah, that's it for me. All right, so I've seen a couple. Um, first, I went and saw uh, Joseph Kaczynski's latest film, Only the Brave, uh, about a you know team of uh, firefighters that were tragically killed um, in the line of duty. Uh, and this movie is really good. Um, I've, I've been rooting for Kaczynski for a while. I'm not a huge Tron fan, but I, I really enjoyed Oblivion. And he, br- he really brought his uh, visual style here. There's, there's some incredible... Uh, just cinematography and the shots they get of the fires and how they, how these guys go into the uh, like like the really super dangerous places and try to contain these wildfires. Um, but what really I think really worked is that it spent a lot of time just allowing us to be with these characters and get to know them, and just you know feel the camaraderie of this kind of brotherhood they've cre- they created in this team, um, and also kind of some of the drama surrounding their family lives. Uh, Josh Brolin gives one of the best performances I've seen from him uh, in, in here. Um, Miles Teller is really always excellent. Uh, and I have, he still have a huge man crush on Taylor Kitsch and James Badgerdale. He's, he's an actor who gets a lot of small side roles, but I think he really does a lot with all of them. And so it's a really great uh, uh, ensemble. And I think it just, it 
paints a really good picture of this team and it comes in for like a serious emotional gut punch uh towards the end i was like completely devastated uh so yeah it's, it's a really good movie unfortunately it looks like it's gonna bomb so um if you have a chance to go see it definitely do that uh and finally i finished up the um my saga through the nightmare on elm street the original series with freddy's yes. dead the final nightmare no oh boy um <laughs> i know i ranted last week about how much i loathed uh the dream child and how demoralized i was uh i just i i feel like i was such a like a naive child ranting against that film now that i've seen this one uh, it, it's it's just bad um <laughs> firstly the awful awful 3d effects that they have are randomly thrown at the screen like every chance they get is like is really laughable um but just they've by this time they've completely given up there's no story there's no characters it's just utter nonsense it's bad uh and freddy is a total total joke by this time uh so yeah um the series really didn't end well i'm not sure why people are so up in arms about the remake (laughs) it was really necessary All right, uh, so that's all I've seen. Um, so is there anything else you guys want to mention before we move into the main review? Uh, just one thing: Dream Child is a underrated masterpiece. Uh, that is all. So Dream Child's an abomination. I'm just right, we, it's a three-star movie that's very entertaining. Okay, we can cut that on post. Let's just. Let's, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to start lying on our uh, podcast. No, it's enjoy. I enjoy it, but look, no matter how bad this podcast episode is, it won't be as bad as Freddy's Dead. So that's, that's true. Uh, We'd have to work there's hard. There's a segue. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, begin our review for A Nightmare on Elm Street. A Nightmare on Elm Street was released in 2010. It's obviously a remake of the classic Wes Craven film of the same name. It was directed by Samuel Baylor on a budget of $35 million, and it grossed about $115 million, and was met with pretty universal and overwhelming like disgust and disdain, uh, seems like for both critics, critics and audiences. Um, it stars Rooney Mara, Kyle Gallner, Jackie Earl Haley, Katie Cassidy, Thomas Decker, Connie Britton, Clancy Brown, and Kellen Lutz. And it was written by Wesley Strick and Eric... Uh, Heisner or something really weird name uh which is interesting uh he's the same he's the screenwriter for arrival which uh kind of means two very different things for uh, james and i oh man here we go again <laughs> um and it was shot by jeff cutter and the score was composed by steve jablonski because michael bay <laughs> um and i'll get you to read the brief synopsis james all right Several people are hunted by a cruel serial killer who kills his victims in their dreams. While the survivors are trying to find the reason for being chosen, the murderer won't lose any chance to kill them as soon as they fall asleep. All right, uh, so James, why did you want to bring this on? Didn't you get the memo that all remakes are terrible, you know, even if they're not? (laughs) Yeah, but then I realized that that's just stupid logic because movies like this end up being good sometimes. Um I brought it. I was actually really nervous about bringing this on because I hadn't seen it since 2010, um, and so I was putting a lot of faith into the movie critic that lived inside of 15 year old me. 
uh, <laughs> thinking, oh crap, what if I, what if I just thought anything was great back then? Um, but rewatching it, I, I would have absolutely uh, still picked it out because I think that this movie does a lot good. Um, and it's even better having seen the original, in my opinion. I don't want to talk a whole lot about why I think that is, but um, I just think that this definitely fits the bill in being underrated because it's like people just saw a different movie than me. There's there's really great performances, really cool and unique ideas here. Um, I don't know, there's just a lot to like, and it makes me really sad that uh, we were not going to be able to get a new series with Jackie Earl Haley in the lead just because people kind of decided they hated it before they even saw it. Yeah. Um, I think it'd be interesting, like real quick before you move on into the main review, uh, you, you want to kind of uh, detail your history with the franchise and, and your feelings on, like, on it as a whole? Let's uh, start with you, Eric. Uh, yeah, no, actually my introduction to the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise was the remake. Um, oh. I was about 15 or 16 when the movie came out. And uh, a friend in high school, kind of like you hear stories of Edgar Wright getting a copy of Evil Dead on a secondhand VHS. Um, I, I got a, a, a very grainy bootleg copy of Nightmare on Elm Street. But I remember watching it with no knowledge of the character aside from, you know, hearing that Freddy's scary. Uh, he's up there with Jason and Michael Myers and Leatherface. Um, and uh, I watched the movie and the, the opening scene where, you know, this guy's trying not to fall asleep in a cafe is stalked by this kind of creepy burn victim and then, you know, eventually ends up cutting his own throat out um, with a knife was just a really shocking moment, um, kind of as a teen starting to get into horror. And, uh, yeah, I fell in love with the movie. Um, actually, a lot of my um, favorite horror movies have become <laughs> uh, remakes. Um, and Platinum Dunes put out um, Nightmare on Elm Street and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, both of which I think are um, fantastic movies. Um, yeah. And then I, after watching Nightmare on Elm Street, I wanted to see how it started. Um, I watched the first Nightmare on Elm Street, um, and thought it was, I know this is blasphemy. I thought it was okay at the time. Um, I was, <laughs> I was geared toward the flashy Michael Bay style remake. I wasn't ready for kind of a slow burn, you know, Wes Craven, you know, somewhat of a think piece with a lot of dialogue. Um, I fell in love with, um, parts two through, uh, four, uh, grew to love dream child and, um, you know, love new nightmare. Um, but yeah, really it's become my favorite franchise. Um, it's the first franchise I made my wife watch all the way through when we got married. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm rewatching those all the time. They're probably the most played, uh, movies at my house. And uh, what about you, James? Well, whenever I was 12 years old, we, moved from where I had lived originally into a very small town called Winsboro. And it was directly across the street from my aunt and uncle and my cousin. And he was a huge horror buff. He loved scary movies. And I really hadn't had a whole lot of experience. Um, at the time, probably the scariest thing I'd seen was Signs. I just went over and it was movie after movie. Uh, I was just making up for all of the lost time. Uh, went through the Friday the 13th, the Grudge, The Ring, um, Exorcist at some point. It was just all sorts of movies. Um, and they scared me at first, but then I kind of like, I would just get used to it and it was hard to scare me. Uh, 
And then we watched A Nightmare on Elm Street. And this was the first movie for a while that actually got to me again. I was probably either just about to turn 13 or had just turned 13 after spending an entire year of just living in the horror genre. Um, and this was probably the first and maybe even the only scary movie that has legitimately kept me from trying to go to sleep. Uh, I was terrified and it wasn't really like, oh, I, I believe in Freddy. This, this one or the original? Uh, the original, sorry. Okay. This, so this would have been about 2008 or 2009. So the, the remake hadn't come out yet. Um, but my cousin, his sister had bought him the entire collection. And he was like, this is one of my favorites. We're going to sit down and go through this. So we watched the first one and it terrified me. Like scenes of Freddy cutting open his stomach and just laughing about it just scarred my scarred my youthful mind. Um, and seeing him... In, Weirdly enough, 80s practical effects still are creepier to me than like CGI and stuff, even though you can tell like it's just a bunch of different trickery going on and you know it's fake. There's just something about seeing it do stuff. So like him running down with his arms elongating scared the crap out of me at first. <laughs> and so I, I ended I still loved it though, and I was like, oh man, that movie scared me in a way that I hadn't for a long time. So we watched the second one, did not like the second one at all. And I was like, well, dang, maybe this is a one-hit wonder. But um, Dream Warriors is great. Um, and after Dream Warriors, I feel like at four is still good. But after that, I feel like they kind of just started coasting on three and four, trying to replicate the ideas, but with a much lesser execution. But even still, even the bad ones, I still kind of enjoy just because I don't know, it's it's dumb eighties fun, um, and then we ended it with New Nightmare, which I loved, um, probably my second favorite of the series. And so by the time two thousand ten rolled around, I was a diehard Nightmare on Elm Street fan, and me and my cousin went and saw it in the theater. Uh, well, my history with it has started this month, and I've kind of <laughs> detailed my thoughts on each film uh, on the show. Um, so I guess it's for me. I obviously don't have any nostalgic connection to them. And since I I started with A Nightmare on Elm Street on on this whole horror marathon I've been on, it kind of was kind of shocking just how how bad the acting was. Although I I quickly realized that terrible acting is pretty pretty much the norm for 80s horror. Um, So if I saw it again, I'd probably be more forgiving. But but stuff like that... uh, did, it went a long ways to keeping me from really connecting with the film when I saw it. I, I completely uh, realized, recognized the genius of the concept. And I think that's what this film really has going for it, is just this concept that uh, Wes Craven created that makes you like the most fundamental human need of sleep. It turns that into something that will kill you. And you know the character of Freddy, the way he tortures them, is it, it was, it is, I think it's super terrifying. And it does... Um, you know, in spite of the flaws, I think it's still an incredibly effective film. Um, so I guess moving into the remake, um, for me, like not having that connection to the original and seeing a lot of its flaws, I think this film improved several of the areas that I really, really kind of irked me about the original. Um, just I think the first off the perfor- like the performances. And I think it's weird. The pacing 
is interesting because I, I think both the pacing is better than the first one, but also falls into some of the same traps. Uh, but I'll, I'll get into all that later. Um, so let's, uh, why don't you, let's go to you, Eric, just kind of, uh, what do you like about this movie? Um, well, like I said, I kind of have the, in a weird way, I have the nostalgic connection to the first, uh, or to the remake, I suppose. Um, you know, as much as I love the entire franchise, I do think I, I tend to agree with you and I'm sure we'll get into likes and dislikes a little bit later, but, um, you know, as far as the remake, I think it took, it took the concept that Wes Craven came up with and just, you know, like you said, it, 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 it took care of some of the, you know, <laughs> the spottier acting. Um, it, it made it, you know, scary again for, you know, for our current time. Um, I think Jackie Earl Haley's, um, Freddy is incredibly scary, um, in the film. Um, but my, honestly, my favorite thing about the film, you know, aside from the, the cinematography and the visual style of it, a lot of which, you know, was pulled from the original series, uh, you know, the the biggest thing I've always liked about the entire series as a whole is the relatability to the main characters. Um, you know, I was watching through, uh, I was telling you guys, Never Sleep Again, the, the documentary talking about, you know, the making of, of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. And, you know, there's something in in all the, the Elm Street kids that we can relate to, you know, and there's there's that idea of having something so terrifying or terrible happening to you that no one seems to understand. And I think that, you know, obviously while this film pushed that more into the area of, you know, you know, child abuse, um, I think the, the dynamic between the kids and each other in trying to explain this to the, um, authority figures in their life is a really interesting thing. And I think for a, a horror movie that's generally aimed at teenagers, I think there's a lot to grab hold of. Um, you know, I think that's something I still relate to now is there's when there's situations that I, you know, can't explain anybody else and they think it's just in your head or it's just something that's, you know, that's not real or really as important as you say, you know, and all the while you're chasing from your own, you know, Freddy Krueger. I think, I think there's a lot to hold on to there as opposed to a Friday the 13th, which I also love, but that there's not a lot of, um, you know, personal connection to the characters in those films, you know, or Halloween, even with um, Laurie Strode, there's not a lot to really connect with for a mainstream audience. But, you know, as Wes Craven says, like everybody sleeps, everybody has nightmares. And so everyone can relate to this feeling of just helplessness. And so um, what I love about Nightmare on Elm Street is they didn't change the formula of the original movie. They just took scenes, made them a little scarier um, for a 21st century audience, and they cut a lot of the, the dull bits um, from the original. I don't think the original movie is a perfect movie. I think the concept is an amazing concept, and that's what carried the series for so long. But um, that's my – I mean that's – I love the movie because it's a good movie. Um, it's just a solid horror movie and a, and a good remake. Yeah, I'm wishing I added a lot to uh, my notes after hearing that there's a lot of things that – came to my mind with some of the stuff you said one of the, one of the things was like this feeling of helplessness and the fact that authority figures whether it's parents or the law or whatever aren't are not only not helping you but almost acting against you and i think that's a concept that's used in a lot of scary movies but it's used almost predominantly in a really bad manner like it's just poorly done where sure. i'm just going to make up like just a fake scenario but it, it 
it wouldn't surprise me if there's an 80s movie out there where someone just, or really any scary movie, uh, regardless of the decade, where we, we see the teenager witness something. It's not just, oh, it's my eyes playing trick. Like, you, you witness some sort of supernatural murder, and they tell it to their parents, and they're like, oh, it's, it's just a bad dream. And the, the child is like, ah, oh, maybe. And, like, they try to, like, write it off, and the parents really don't think too much about it. It, it just feels very fake. Um, yeah. That, that a parent would be so unconcerned about it and have no real explanation for it. And then the child would almost be like, okay, yeah, I guess maybe you're right. Here, well, I think. Oh, sorry. No, were you, no uh, what were you going to say? Well, I think I'm saying what you're about to say, but I think Nightmare fixes that problem by giving the parents a reason to keep their kids um, from, you know, really believing what they're seeing. Yeah, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's that's an aspect that really stuck out to me. Um, it seems like in so many, especially eighties and nineties films, there's this real palpable kind of disconnect between uh, adults and children. Like, it's like a, a theme through all kinds of different genres, kind of to where they they're, they're always kind of at odds at, with each other. Um, and I really like that we've kind of moved past that. Uh, because it's, you know, it's not only is it obviously not true for most parents to have that kind of hostility, but I think there's there's a whole another level of emotion and connection that you could have by having parents who truly care about their kids and then having their kids in this kind of horrifying situation. All they want to do is protect them. I think, you know, that, that, that's a, uh, just a whole another level of dramatic connection to mind that the eighties uh, films just kind of threw away. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I, I really liked about it was they, they do it in such a smart way where the parents have, have reason to to try to deny it even if they think it's true but then there's a moment in this one when she explains to the to the teenagers that what this is is memories that you all made and maybe it was you know it was the death of dean at the beginning of the movie that's just kind of triggered it in all of you like i i remember whenever um i think it's towards the beginning just before chris dies Whenever her boyfriend, whose name escapes me, when he, when he says, "There's you know, there's no way we're having the same dream," and he tries to explain it away, and I remember thinking, like, "How how do they how do how are the kids going to try to pretend that this isn't something crazy?" Because this was one of my problems with a lot of scary movies, where it's like there is something clearly supernatural, and everybody seems all too willing to write it off as something explainable, and I I remember thinking how. I know these characters are going to try to write it off, but how could they possibly do this? And whenever they bring up the concept of, here's how it makes sense that you're all having the same dream. You all experience the same drama and uh, just tragedy as children. So you all have these same memories. So to experience collectively this tragedy, it would make sense for it to kind of trigger memories you all share. And so I remember just being impressed by the fact that wow, they kind of gave them a reason to explain this away. Like, obviously, it, it, it doesn't work entirely. You know, they're like, no, no, this, there's something beyond that. But whatever he says, whenever she says, that doesn't make sense at all. And, um, and he says, no, it makes perfect sense. I completely understand why someone would hear that and be like, no, that does make sense. Yeah, and, and I think it's that you know, reflecting on the Elm Street series as a whole, because I think this one really does fit in well with the series um, tonally, um, even though obviously the later movies and series 
got more comedic. I think the the underlying tones are there, if not a little bit darker than original. But I think I think what we're all touching on is the kind of earnestness of the relationships. Um, it's parents that you believe. It's it's kids that you would believe would respond the way they do. And I think what that points back to is kind of the original concept and philosophy that Wes Craven brought to all of his movies, especially um, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but Wes Craven grew up very strict religious fundamentalist background um, and went to seminary. And even though he, you know, ended up leaving seminary and becoming a film director and, and you know, even though his worldview shifted a ton, um, what he did keep with him, I was just listening to an interview with Heather Langenkamp, um, and she said this as well, is what he did, did keep with him was that importance of the, the fight of good versus evil and that that sense of there being this hope in every situation. Even in, even in his films like The Hills Have Eyes or, you know, Last House on Left, there's this sense, this odd sense of hope. And I think that's most clearly seen in the Elm Street series. Um, you know, he'll he'll show the dark side of a parent, you know, hurting their kids by trying to protect them, or or this town with all these secrets, or or children, you know, you know, this story of a child molester, a child murderer. But there's with how much, you know, with how much darkness he shows, he's never, you know, nihilistic. He's always balancing the depravity of the world with you know, this message of hope, um, just as long as we can, you know, band together, understand what the problem is and, and fight against it. Um, and I think that's really, that shines through even, even in the remake. Um, I think that really shines through very clearly. Yeah. It's, it's funny you mentioned that. Cause I remember like when I first, when the first West Karen films I saw was the scream series. And it was weird. Cause I would use words almost like wholesome and likable <laughs> to describe yeah, that all those sequels, which feels so weird for a slasher film. But yeah, there, there is such a that, that that aspect does play into a lot of his films. Yeah, there's there's definitely a very strong you know philosophical or religious subtext under his movies, um, and and I think he was a very you know he had a very moralistic vision you know of the world. There there had to be a pure good like a nancy you know um and there had to be a pure evil like a freddy krueger and um and i think they toyed with that middle ground of someone that you know again parents unintentionally harming their kids or parents you know intentionally harming their kids um you, you know i think i just think he was really good at understanding the reasoning behind his character's motivations and a lot of that just came from him studying philosophy for so long and you know being a professor and and knowing you know, how people tick and what, you know, what the universal languages of the world were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to talk about was th there were a couple of things that really stood out to me about this film in contrast to the other ones. This doesn't even feel like a slasher film. Um, it just, it just, to me, it, it felt like just straight up, you know, skin crawling horror. Um, and I think there are a lot of elements that kind of work to get it there. I mean, first, I think Steve, uh, Samuel Baylor's direction and ba is it Baylor or Bayer? Uh, I think it's Bayer. Bayer. Yeah. Sa Samuel Bayer's direction. Um, I think he, he, he does a really cool thing. He drops us like directly in with these kids into what they're experiencing. And I think he keeps the focus very much on them. I think the perspective is always really tight. 
So we're just constantly stuck with them. And it just creates this feeling of like building claustrophobia and dread. Like, like it just keeps building and building across the entirety of the second and third act. Um, it just kind of just gets under your skin. Um, and then secondly, I think we talked about the, I think the acting is definitely better, which makes it easier to, you know, form it like just that immediate connection with a person when they act like a person and not a piece of wood. Uh, and uh, I think f- this film is, I mean, for you know, obviously the original nightmare is incredibly dark. This is even still a much darker beast, like just at the basic script level, um, that uh, than than the the entire original series, and and I think that really works in its favor. Um, and I, I want I'm going to explore all of that. Um, so, but I'm curious, did, did y'all? How did y'all view just the, the drastic shift in tone and style? Do you think do you like that better than the, than the original, or do you think the original is uh, preferable? Well. I think I think the remake. Okay, so again, I think uh, I think you have to go with the time period. I think at its time, the night the original Nightmare on Elm Street was a you know a terrifying movie. Um, you know, I think the reason that it doesn't maybe have the same, and some people say it still does, but the reason I think it doesn't have the same you know impact of just sheer terror when I watch it is just that it, it you know sure the acting, but I think just seeing um seeing horror take place in the time period and in the style in which you're familiar often enhances it um you know i think you know there's something about a different setting which is i i I think this what keeps stranger things from being a uh from being a scary show and being more of a comforting show is that we're separated by time um so we're watching back in the 80s i think it's the same with watching back in the nightmare on elm street there's something kind of soft and warm about even if the movie's dark something soft and warm about the aesthetic and that you know that kind of you know old school style horror um the new nightmare movie isn't it's more darker with its themes but i think as far as the actual scenes that are or scares a lot of those are in the original film um we're just seeing them play out to people that look like people we would see every day um we don't have that that comfort of time um, you know, I, I think, yeah, I, I think the new nightmare, the going a little bit darker than the original with the, you know, the child molestation angle being played he- more heavily than, um, just him being a child killer. That was Wes Craven's original intention with the mm-hmm. series. Um, the only reason that they shelved that was that right when they were going into production, there was a scandal that had just erupted and there was this huge, child molestation case that had taken place. And so they reeled back on the molestation and hit the child killer angle more. So I think with this movie, bringing that to the forefront, people said, whoa, this is dark. This isn't the Freddy we knew and loved. But I think it, you know, first of all, a child killer is not many, (laughs) many steps better than a child molester. Um, But I think it also, you know, if you want to get down to it, that was closer to Wes Craven's original intention. His original intention was to make this the seediest, you know, most evil, you know, figure he could. And so, yeah, I appreciate the the darkness of the remake and I appreciate it more each time I watch it. Um, I think it, I think it does the opposite of what the other sequels did that eventually ruined the franchise was they kept getting lighter and more comedic. And this said, no, we're going back to, you know, the OG nightmare. We're going to make it dark, scary, and, just you know you know just terrifying 
Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. Um, to me, I, I didn't know that that was his original intention. Um, for me, the first one didn't really have to be any darker than it was. It wasn't like it was having to build off of any reputation. Uh, it brought to the table this concept. It had it. It wasn't standing on the shoulders of anything else, so it didn't have anything to prove. So it's just this film that shows up with an amazing concept and some really original ideas. Um, and it, it didn't need to rely on anything else or go any deeper than what it was because it was the only thing like that at the time. And then like Eric said, you know, it kind of got lighter and lighter. And so I think kind of unfortunately, people associate the Freddy of the first movie with the Freddy of the sequels as well, but a little bit too closely. Um and so, I think with the second one, you can no longer just come to the table with this concept anymore. We've seen so many sequels, we understand what this character is, and so it did have something to prove. And so, instead of just doubling down on you know the scares and the dream or this idea, even though they do bring a lot of cool ideas to the table, um, they went deeper. They and and. This is why it upsets me that it got such poor reviews because I think this is a very mature and well-handled story about this that goes in darker places that the original never never went. Uh, but I'm just now figuring out. Tried to at first, um, but it it did come and say, okay, Freddy's been established now. His the way he kills has been established, but let's. Let's dive deeper into him. Who was this character before Freddy Krueger? Like, who is Fred Krueger? What set this up? Why are the parents so afraid to let their kids remember? What is what is the connection between Freddy and the kids? Like, why is why is he after him? It, we're going beyond just the style of the way he goes after him and what he looks like and his style in general. And we're getting into like the actual reasons behind everything and the fact that. This director, who had only done music videos before this, came and brought this level of maturity um, and taste. Honestly, like you're kind of tiptoeing around being very untasteful with this kind of subject matter. But the way he handled it, I just thought was very, you know, it, we're here for entertainment. We're here to be scared. But he still handled it with a very mature level of integrity um, in a way that delves deeper into the, the psychology of Fred Krueger and his relationship with the children. And I just think it went above and beyond the call um, that a remake usually answers to. Yeah. Uh, for me, I think the the one aspect that really went the, the furthest to making it that much darker and more scary was uh, Haley, Jackie Earl Haley's performance. I mean, I know this is going to be a total blasphemy, but I was never scared of uh, yeah. uh, Rob Englund's uh, Freddy. I, as a concept, he is terrifying, especially in the first one. Like when he's uh, killing that girl and like dragging her across the uh, ceiling as he's cutting at her. That's terrifying. Or sucking uh, baby Johnny Depp into a bed and blundering him. Like though that that's terrifying as a concept. Him on screen. I never really got much out of him. I mean, I don't want to take anything away from England's performance. I think he is fantastic, and he com he totally committed in every awful sequel. He was always giving 100%, so I really respect him. I think it's a, it's a terrific character, and 
even when he's not trying to be scary and just trying to be funny. He's he's a, a blast to watch. Yeah. But with Jackie Earl Haley, he's not he's not like a, a smart ass doing a comic routine. He's he's not a stand up comedian. This is like a demon from the pit of hell who is here to hurt you and kill you. And every single thing he does only serves that purpose. Um, you know, he still has some wisecracks, but I think all of them operate on a far darker and more terrifying level than they do in the original series with his jokes. Like in the original, it felt like he was just kind of mocking them. Here, there's like a level of venom and cruelty that I felt behind them that I think just kind of added to his scariness rather than detracting from it. Um, and just like this, if you're if you're if you're making a story about a creature that invades your most personal thoughts and dreams and kills you from the inside out, this thing of pure evil that uh, Jackie Earl Haley, uh, Jackie Earl Haley <laughs> created is just, I think, perfect for that, especially with the darker tone this film had. And he he was, he just, his presence was so overpowering and terrifying um, in this movie. You know what? I, I'm going to surprise you. I could not agree more. Um, I, I totally agree with that. As far as the scares go, I think he's a much scarier Freddy. I, and, and let me backpedal and say, Robert England will always be my favorite Freddy Krueger. Um, and that's because he's such a fun character. Um, but as far as scares go, I, it was kind of the, the first nightmare, the scene with the girl getting dragged around the room is to me one of the scariest scenes. It still holds up really, really well. And I think those actors, even though they're not solid through the whole movie, they sell that scene and the direction and the shots is, is terrifying. And then, like you said, when, when, when Freddy Krueger first really shows up in all his glory running down the alleyway, the first time I watched the movie, I kind of giggled and laughed at just <laughs> this little man running down with a fedora. And again, not taking anything away from the performance, but it wasn't – he was always played – even in Wes Craven's original, he was always played more comedic. You know, even Rob, Robert England says he took a lot of influence from Jerry Lewis and you know other comedians even in the first film. As opposed to Jackie Earl Haley – he feels like a burned child molester and, and his, you know, the closest he gets to really jokes is, you know, I mean, yeah, they're all very dark edge and, and the things he says, you know, it's, it comes from a history with these kids rather than, you know, with Robert England, it was just something, the way his character was written, it was just something creepy to say, you know, it was, oh, I'm going to cut off my finger and laugh and stare at you. As opposed to Jackie Earl Haley saying, this dress was always my favorite. And it just sends shivers down your spine, you know. So I think the first nightmare, the nightmare scenes were scary. Freddy doesn't come off as scary to me. But I think the remake, while the nightmare sequences aren't as scary, I think that Freddy Krueger is far scarier. So I think there's kind of a flip there. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think both films can be appreciated for what they are. Yeah, what are you screaming about? I haven't even <laughs> cut you yet. <laughs> yes. So, I I mean, I guess apparently I'm the only one who was terrified by Robert Englund, but my goodness, <laughs> he he did show up in my nightmares. Um, I, and, I will give you, in Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the one scene that terrified me and just made me, like, goosebumps was <laughs> in Nightmare on Elm Street 3 when the drug addict who <laughs> has her arms 
and the the little mouths where the the track marks are and he says let's get high that scared the pants off me that and the um the puppeteering scene where he rips the kids veins out and is walking down the hallway oh. those two scenes freddy krueger was scary to me but that's that he wasn't consistently scary for me yeah i guess you know i i was a super young age whenever i first saw him um but i think what's what made him scary to me was exactly what you said where he takes inspiration from jerry lewis where it's there's just something so creepy and wrong about the idea of being killed by someone who's essentially in the middle of a stand-up routine like they're making dad level puns and just doing this um slapstick like very gory slapstick level comedy while they're just killing teenagers while he's killing teenagers and so that that concept of someone just being so gleeful and like cheesy and comedic while committing these brutal acts like putting those two together was just terrifying for me um and then i i do agree that in the original it was less showy in the the scene of chris dying and i will always be haunted by seeing her just slowly dragged across with the leaving behind the blood streak. It's just horrifying imagery. But I also completely agree with you uh, with both what you said um, about Jack Earl Haley. He is, you, you described the script here as a darker beast to me that that's accurate, but I also just described this Freddy as a darker beast. He is truly terrifying and he makes your skin crawl and I think a lot of that is the backstory they gave him. You know, seeing him in the flashbacks is this guy playing with him. What makes him so scary instead of just like the child murderer, obviously there's nothing good about that. But it it also just feels like the idea behind a scary movie villain. Oh, it's a guy so evil he kills kids. Whereas seeing him interact, like playing hide and seek with the kids and yeah. the way he paints, there's something frighteningly real about him he feels like a real kind of person and so knowing who he is and then watching the nightmare scenes with that like context it is bone chilling um there is just this bitterness behind every joke like he's like we we both or we've all said you know he's still cracking jokes but these jokes are personal and he's He's still angry. I don't think there's anything angry about the Freddy Krueger of the original series. He's having the time of his life. Whereas here, there's just this bitterness and rage that's been, you feel like has been building up ever since they were kids and he was first killed. And so every line, you know, when he says, oh God, it's no, just me. And it's just, it really is the stuff of nightmares because of how personal this is he's not doing it for fun he's doing it because he hates them he's any sense any weird twisted sense of love or connection he had with them is gone and has just been consumed with this demonic levels of anger and hate and yeah the scenes of him chasing them and mocking them in his own dark twisted way is just terrifying yeah yeah and i think you know making him a child molester who's returned to punish these children, I guess who in his mind led to his death and betrayed him. I think is is dark, is darker and more scary than, you know, uh, 
maybe a, a, a guy who was already killing kids who because he liked it and is just back to kill more kids. I think making this a personal like journey of retribution uh, for him. I don't know. For, for me, it just get, it gets gets me much more. I think than there, even though they kind of have a backstory there, I think they, it feels far more random in the original series. Yeah. Um, this is so much more focused and personal. Uh, and just the way he has this feeling of like ideas of like ownership and possessiveness that he brings towards these uh, children. Oh, man. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, one of the complaints on the movie was, um, I think Freddie in the originals was a little more over the top with the design. Even, um, they gave him more of the hook nose, um, and the, the pointy chin and, and made him look kind of more demonic. And, um, I was just listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about the remake and they, they didn't like the remake and they were saying, you know, they always think of the Roger Corman quote where if you're going to have a girl being chased by a monster, you have to have the monster be taller than the girl and bigger than the girl. Um, which is a it's a funny tell, tell that to Rorschach. Yeah, it's it's a funny it's a funny little joke, but it it you know when I watch the movie, I think that because Jackie Earl Haley is so small and he doesn't have very he has a very narrow face, but he doesn't have like a they didn't go over the top with kind of like the more devilish look. Um, I think he's a little more frightening because he looks like I mean a child. He looks just like a normal creepy weird person that you would see connect in a story like this and and the fact that he doesn't have a lot of discernible facial features kind of makes him you know more terrifying under that burn makeup but um yeah no i i think we can all agree that both performances it's do justice to the character i think in a big way can we at least all agree uh no uh kindergarten school in the right mind would hire jackie earl haley (laughs) (laughs) i feel so bad for saying that but yeah he to me i can't understand anybody criticizing his performance here and the idea that you know his stature inhibits his performance to me is is crazy because he's just this he's this small unassuming man who now has power like he said you're you're in my world now well, he was powerful. He was powerful over the kids, and the way he maintains power is by what's he do at the end of the movie? He puts Nancy back in the dress she wore when she was a kid, and so so his way of becoming a bigger, like badder guy was to make these kids feel so small, you know. And I think that's something that you know. I don't know. I don't understand that the dislike, even Robert England, who's not a fan of the the remake, he's, you know, he said Jack Earl Haley was a perfect choice for the role and said he's one of the best things of Watchmen. He's one of the best things of Shutter Island. And, and he said he was, you know, he was great. Um, that's, but again, that's one of those things where you get into remake territory where whatever the franchise is, you know, you can do a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie and you say, well, Leatherface is a different actor than in the original. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, obviously you have to get somebody talented in the role, but it's not a, you know, would I like to see Robert England come back? Yes. I would love to see him play Freddy again, but to say that no one could ever do a different take on the character that can be equally terrifying is just ludicrous. Um, it doesn't make any sense to me. And that's what I loved is that they 
they didn't go the Brendan Ruth Superman Returns route where let's let's find somebody who looks just like Robert England. Hey, I like Brendan <laughs> Routh as Superman. I I kind of like him, but I hate that movie. Uh, I love that movie. <laughs> but here, <laughs> <Anyway>. another time. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'll um, see you on Facebook tonight. Um, but here, I'm so glad that they they didn't just try to rehash. Kruger, um, or sorry, uh, England's Freddy Krueger. Um, in a weird way, he played him, what is it, like six main series plus the, um, or is it seven in the main series plus New Nightmare? Is that it? Uh, I think it's six. Uh, see, Freddy's Dead isn't numbered, so that throws me off. Um, I think it's six and then New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare is seven. Okay. So I think there's seven total in the original series. Okay. Um, so he, he, regardless, he's, he's played this character so many times. He has a sense of ownership of this kind of character. Um, and so while they, they share the name, like the the basic concept and name is shared, Jackie Earl Haley isn't trying to encroach on Robert England's territory. He's, he is doing his own thing. Uh, and I, I love that they went with just straight up burn victim Um, because this, this is a darker, more real and much more personal um, story. And the line, if they hadn't gone with as real as they went, the line would be ruined where he says, you know, look what they did to me. Uh, Yeah, exactly. Whenever he says that and you see him and he looks like a burn victim, it doesn't justify him in the least, but you understand why he does it. He feels betrayed by these children who, like like we said before, he almost feels this weird sick sense of ownership over. And they did this to him, and now he looks like this scarred, disfigured person. And so the fact that he's so bitter and he's so jaded and he looks like like what someone would look like in that situation... Um, I don't. I just. I love how every aspect of him, other than basic concept, was completely original and unique. They they weren't just capitalizing on like England's portrayal. Well, and I love that they made him in a way sympathetic, um, not because of who he was, but because they really show how terrible. As much as they show how terrible he was, they show how terrible the parents taking law into their own hands was. Um, and that, that sequence I think is terrifying where he's, he's screaming, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And the movie plays for a second of, did he really do it? Is he angry because he's false? Like he's obviously by the end of the movie, they clear up that he did do it. But I love that moment where they're, they're throwing the, they're throwing the Molotov cocktails into the building. He's just screaming like a child. I didn't do it. I didn't, please don't, please stop. And trying to stomp out this fire he's never been able to stop. There's this moment where you feel as bad for him as you would for any of the victims in the movie. And it, and, and I think the movie works really well in that way. Um, I never f- felt sympathy for England's Freddy Krueger. And that's not a, you know, that's just something where, I don't know if that was not intended to happen. But, you know, that's something with Jackie Earl Haley's is that there's something so pitiful already about him and it just is enhanced by the scenarios he's placed in and his circumstance yeah and, and another aspect i think that of that is 
brought to this film by having more sympathetic parents is the you know the whole idea of the sins of the father haunting the children was so strong and palpable in this movie um yeah and it's interesting the, the whole thing about you know making you for that moment you know feel the doubt and pity and even pity for him and and you know possibly believing like a possibility of his original innocence i'm it, it really struck me as off i might like the first when i first heard it in the film it just kind of felt like why are you going there um yeah but i think by the end i think they were going for something like how the idea of you know where how like uh sexual abuse victims in real life kind of they will sometimes you know blame themselves and try to and like not and are less likely to you know go after the person responsible and i I was wondering, like, you know how they talk about the possibility where the, maybe the kids lied about this. Um, I don't think it's explored as well as I would like to. To, to throw that huge wrench into the film, I kind of wish they explored that idea a bit more and clarified it a bit. Because I think it's a, it's, just, it's, it's a beat that just strikes a little off. But I do think it, it, it's a, it could have been a very interesting aspect to go into. Um, but I can't completely hate it because I think one of my favorite scenes it does give us is, you know... Um, where uh you know Quentin when uh, Quentin and um what's uh Nancy were uh going and talking to Clancy Brown and Quentin has that outburst of just like you just feel you know all this terror he's been feeling he's just taking out on his father I mean like what if what have you done maybe you may you may have just murdered us kind of thing and uh the the, the guy Kyle Gallner is fantastic um I agree. Yeah. And but the uh, and then that line from Clancy Brown is like you know I hope if you ever have children you never have to experience the feeling of of, ha- of having utterly failed to protect them. And yeah. his, he's only in like three scenes, but he 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 definitely earns his uh, paycheck um, here. <laughs> yeah, I I completely forgot that it was him, but yeah, he's great, and that line stuck out to me too. Where. Again, it's almost going to sound like in a weird way we're bashing the original. The original is probably still my second favorite horror movie of all time. There's just, based on my, you know, history with it, I adore the very first one. But it never did make me feel like that. With that that line where he says, I hope you never have to feel like you've utterly failed as a parent. Like, you feel emotion. And whenever he says, not a day goes by that I don't think about that, you believe it. This is something that... It's not just haunting the kids. Uh, well, it's it's haunting them more literally. This is something that still haunts this man, um, and I just think that that's it's really crazy that they they went there that they they went for this kind of emotional level in a slasher movie. And I think that was super brave. Okay. Uh, and, and as for like the whole, you know, causing the audience to doubt for a little bit, I didn't even think about it from that angle. Um, for me, whenever I first heard, you know, like, and fully believed the first time, you know, uh, we, we lied, you know, and now he's, he's kind of doing two things. He's, he's punishing us for lying about him. You know, we, we killed him, but at the same time, he's, he's also punishing the parents who killed him. It's like, you did this to me and I'm going to take away your children. Um, I'm going to do to them what you thought I was doing uh, for real yeah. this time. And so I was like, oh, wow. The fact that, you know, the twist was that he was innocent 
And now this is an innocent man and acting revenge. Like that's such a cool twist. And I was a little bit disappointed to find out that he actually did it. Uh, I was like, oh, man, it was, it was cool to think that he was the original innocent victim. But what made me come around to it was these killings are just as personal as I thought they were before the reveal here. But now he's just become, and it's the word you're using, he's become pitiful now. This is a man who almost still, he still considers himself a victim. And so yeah. the, the line that really connected with me was, you know, he's not punishing us for lying. He's punishing us for telling the truth. Now every, every line that's just fueled by vitriol and hatred is that much more biting now. Like you understand why he is so hateful is because they told on him and he's pissed now. Um, and so I think that the movie works really well whenever you think he's innocent. And, you know, it's, it's a twist that's, as far as I know, never really been done in the genre. Um, but then to, to reveal that that's not the case and that, no, he really did it. But to do it the way they did, they earned that twist. They earned the reveal by making it this personal and jaded revenge story. Yeah. Um, and I, we probably should talk about the rest of the cast and we've been praising uh, Jackie Earl, Earl Haley a lot. But uh, I think like Rooney Mara, I mean, she's obviously a fantastic actress, has, has really made a name for herself. But I thought she was really good here. Um, playing a very quiet, subdued character – but I thought she she brought a lot to that. And there was one scene in particular that uh, it was when she was in bed and she asked her mom about Kruger and her mom lies. And you just see that subtle facial twitch on her mom and then like Rudy Mars eyes just barely twitches. And I was like, wow, isn't it great to have actual actors in these movies again? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's, she was really good all throughout. And just as the, as the terror and, and it was kind of slowly building up and you feel like these characters are under siege and like you just see both the kids just unraveling to like where you you completely believe that she would burn herself with a cigarette lighter just to stay awake um like she's yeah. not, she's not even sleeping yet um and in the end uh as it gets darker and darker and she, she sees the pictures and you know, she's tied to the bed you really feel for her. And I think she really owns this role. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I mean, I, I messaged earlier before we were recording, but I, you know, I'll always have a soft spot for Heather Lane camp. And I, you know, I, her Nancy, who is my Nancy, Robert England is my, my Freddie. But I, I think the cast of all the, um, all the young actors in here, I, I think of, uh, is it, is it Kate or Rooney? I always get the two. Rooney. Is it Rooney Mara? Yeah. Okay, it's Rooney Mara. Um, yeah, Rooney Mara is great. You mentioned um, Kyle Gallner. I think he, honestly, I think he was kind of the character that I thought you know knocked out of the park the most yeah. um, in the movie. Um, but I, I think it was. I mean, they were pretty much neck and neck, just pushing this thing along. Um, and really, I don't know. I was just really impressed. That's honestly the weakest part of the original for me. Is the opening 20 minutes where we're introduced to these friends. Um, and 
you know, a mix of acting and a little bit of choppy writing with those characters really kept me from ever becoming invested in them, aside from Nancy's character. Um, you know, Johnny Depp's death is interesting, but his character isn't given a lot to do. Um, they They get close to really, you know, doing something interesting with the characters, but they never really get there. And I feel like this one, that sense of dread that they communicate the entire movie and that the look of each of the actors is really incredible and really, um, it's just really scary. I mean, the scene where they're in the, the pharmacy and, you know, they're coming up on three days of you know, no sleep. So they're trying to have these micro naps. Um, and he's so... He's urging this authority figure again, this pharmacist, to give him the pills he needs to stay awake. And the whole time you're watching, you're saying, don't look crazy. Don't look like a drug addict. Don't look – because he's not going to help you. He's not going to help you. And meanwhile, he's worried about leaving her in the car. The whole scene is so scary and Freddy's not present for most of that sequence. It's it's this what happens if they fall asleep. Um, and I, I, think, I think they played that to the – to the T and, and not making uh, the authority figures enemies. It, it worked so much better there. Cause like if I was that guy, no, I'm not going to give this crazy drug. No, kid it's, it's all these pills. well-intentioned people that see a different piece of the puzzle. So no one can work together. And that's, that's, that's 99% of problems that humans actually have is everyone sees their corner of an issue. And if they could see the other person's corner, they would be able to figure out a way to stop it. Um, and I think that's what the Nightmare on the Street series plays is that pharmacist, even though in the movie we're like, come on, man, just give him what he needs. Um, he's doing what any sane person would do. And Kyle Gallner's character is doing exactly what we would do. And, you know, the parents are doing what we could see ourselves doing if pushed to this emotional limit. And so the fact that you can relate to every single character, see – see the reason why they're doing what they're doing and feeling this terror of no one else understanding their perspective is really fascinating. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with all that. And a point that I, I probably wouldn't have made um, had I not watched Ouija last night because I would have just taken it for granted. But it's funny that you brought it up. The The first 20 minutes of the original were pre-really um, like heavy Freddy scenes and it's just setting up this dynamic. I think this movie does a great job at setting up a realistic and believable dynamic of these kids. Uh, with Ouija, it's terrible. Everybody shows up, ironically, at a diner as well in that. Um, hmm. But it's like everybody is so obviously reading exposition and trying to make it sound like a conversation. Like, oh, I'm here. I'm the tough girl, though, because... No, or everybody's intimidated by me and I don't really have a date. That's who I am. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm dating this girl over here because we look like it's. I just watched a slasher movie um, and uh, it was one of the Sleepaway Camp sequels in there. The movie does the worst example of that ever where they have these. It's this camp that's reopening to help, you know, inner city kids connect with you know, <laughs> with kids from, you know, wealthier families so they can both get to understand each other. And so first of all, you're starting with a premise that introduces a wide <laughs> array of characters, but then they literally have a news crew reporting on the opening of the camp and they say, Oh, please introduce yourself kids. And so each kid comes up and says, I'm so-and-so I just got out of juvie. 
Um, I'm excited. And then the other girl says, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm from the Valley and my dad. <laughs> and, and so they literally for like a five minute sequence, it's just kids getting up in front of a microphone, staring directly into the screen and saying, I'm this stereotype. And it is so, it's so bad. It's the worst example of that. Um, it'd be funny. Yeah, I would praise that if that were intentional, if it was like almost mocking the genre and how, po- how poorly like written they are. Like but, it felt like something out of a scream movie that self, but with how bizarre that series is, it could have been intentional or it could have been totally like, <laughs> totally accidental. Um, who who knows? But but here with the the remake, unlike the other one where the the exposition is so on the nose and you can you understand everything this scene is meant to set up for you because they're spelling it out in the initial scene. Uh, in a nightmare on Elm Street, and then you know the following funeral, you really start to understand these people. I, I to me, it would have gone no, uh, like unnoticed if I hadn't seen such a bad example before. But here, I'm like, oh wow! In only 15 minutes, this person feels this way about this person because this person did this. These people know this this person over here since this time, and I found out all that information in dialogue that sounds real. Like it doesn't sound like that was for me. That wasn't for the sake of the audience. They were just really smart. They're like, let's tailor a very real conversation. We need the audience to understand this, but let's not be on the nose about it. So, you know, like, oh, he's just mad that Chris dumped him and she's hanging out with this person. Like, absolutely. Well, they just, stuff like that goes on in high it. schools. They yeah, they just showed it. They didn't talk about it. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it was show, don't tell. And that, I think that's where, you know... Wes was amazing with concepts, but sometimes he would he would fall into the you have to tell every everything has to be up front and and so in the original nightmare, oh Nancy's mom's a drunk because she has a bottle with her <laughs> like you know what I mean it, it, as opposed to there's you know like we described the scene at the pharmacy you don't they don't have to say oh you're a drug addict you know or so like you just get that vibe because the tension keeps building between the characters and that diner scene. From the very beginning, like everyone's acting the way you would if you saw the people that you were seeing. Um, I love that. I love that they go for subtext. Yeah, I think that opening scene is pretty brilliant. Um, just because if it if the only thing that scene accomplished was to uh, introduce the characters and you know and their dynamic and all that, it would have been solid writing. But the fact that not only does it introduce all the characters and their dynamic and their personalities, but also introduce the villain and give us this terrifying kill is pretty incredible. And I, I, I got—I was—I t- I texted y'all last night that I was getting a lot of like a Fincher vibes from that—the way that opening was directed. Did any of y'all feel that? Oh, the lighting! The lighting is amazing in that scene. Like how it dips to the green and red neon. It, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's just a well, it's the best scene in the movie. Um, that's the scene that makes me, every time I see it, come on, I'm at that scene where it's starting at the beginning, I have to watch the movie because it's such a gripping, well-shot scene. Um, it's just it's just interesting. And the way they use lighting throughout the movie to kind of show them going into a dream is really interesting. But yeah, there's definitely some uh, some dark kind of Fincher-esque vibes. Yeah, and... and- and the character that Kellen Lutz plays, he's only there like five minutes, but he really, you really feel his plight. 
he sells that role so hard. <laughs> like he does a really good job. And, and the kill, the kill itself is just so, is just so terrifying. Even though it, it's, I mean, it's gory, but it's not like the original series level of gore. But yeah. it's just so impactful. I remember thinking this time watching it. This guy, he's only in it for five minutes, but he's doing a great job. And in my mind, like this is the end of his own movie. Like we're catching the very end of this yeah. other story where this guy was the lead and we're seeing his tragic end and he's playing it like he's the lead, like he is dedicated. And I completely, it, it would be like being introduced to these, uh, these new characters, like during the car ride after three days of sleep deprivation. That's what this felt like. We were catching the tail end of just this horrible experience that this man has had. And to start the movie off like that and to, to exactly what Gabe was saying, to introduce our characters, the dynamic, the concept. Because, I mean, we have had a long series of Nightmare on Elm Street movies, but it had been a long while since um, New Nightmare at this point. And there's probably loads of people who went in there who didn't know like the original films and don't really, or at least aren't super familiar with the the idea behind it. So for it to give us this great introduction to the character the way he kills the concept of the whole movie while setting the stage for the next story. Like it's such an efficient and effective scene. Like the whole movie is able to ride off of this scene working so well. Yeah. Um, at least one of my issues with the film is that I, th- I th- think, you know, having the better actors really goes a long way to have it help us connect with these characters. But I do feel like that first act is super rushed. Um, I, I really wish we got maybe a bit more time out for that to you know, establish these characters, establish their friendships. Didn't we get to know a little bit more about them? I'm thinking maybe <laughs> this sounds horrible, but throw in another friend or two to get killed just to give some more time for these characters to kind of <laughs> kind of develop. Um, that was that was Robert England's other comment on the movie was that he wished you had had more time before that. See, and that's where I'm torn. Is like, yes, I would have liked more time with the characters by the end of the movie but i also wish the movie i love how the movie opens already so it's hard for me to balance because i don't want the movie to open any other way uh, I, I, but, I was thinking it'd be apt just the kind of the repercussions of yeah. the funeral it just seems like it just it just keeps chugging along um yeah and it just it it, it does come a bit at the expense of you know getting to know these characters as people sure i mean the, i think the acting overcomes that but it is a flaw so, so you think maybe the space between the funeral and maybe the first death of the girl in the bed um yeah maybe having an extra yeah no i i get that and i think i think her death didn't have well i think the death is still i don't think it's as good as the original in the movie but um it doesn't have i agree it doesn't have the same weight it would have if we had an extra 10 minutes or five minutes with her um, it would have gone a long way. Although that's a fantastic fake out. I had forgotten the names of the original characters. So yeah, I, I had forgotten who was the main character. So to ha- go like 20 minutes into the film with this girl and then just take her off was like, whoa, yeah. I, 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 I didn't know who was who. So I think it's, I it's pulled really, a psycho. Yeah, I pulled a psycho. And I think it, it, they did it really well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I was more forgiving this time, and I don't mean to keep bringing it up, but I was more forgiving because of watching Ouija last night in which they, they're they like, all right, we're going all in 20 minutes into the movie. Um, like, I felt like the climax was 
slowly building after 20 minutes. Um, but I do agree. And as weird as it sounds, yeah, if maybe if the friend group was a bit bigger and so we could have, we could have done what you said, like maybe kill off a couple more expendables <laughs> as we like, cause you don't want to go too long with nothing happening. You can't open like that and then just have like teenage drama for like, 30 minutes straight. Um, yeah. so I, I, maybe having it more than just, um, like the, the four main characters, you know, adding in a couple of people who are literally there to get killed just so we can kind of continue the idea of this being a scary movie and still can, and continuing this dynamic, um, before yeah. like our main characters start dying. Yeah. Like, and even though the first act is weak, I think the s- second and third acts are near perfect. Um, I think the original there were too many long sequences in bright daylight where you felt like the characters were completely safe in the second act. You just kept like, you'd have this scary dream sequences, a nice, then a nice sequence at school where they're all fine and talking this after, um, Chris dies. The, 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 the it just felt like these characters were just placed in a vice and the entire rest of the film is just slowly cranking down harder and harder and harder till for the last 40 minutes, they are literally running for their lives every step of the way. And it's just like wearing them down to their last nerve. And it was, it was so effective. Yeah. There's like a, this sense of desperation you get here that you really didn't get anywhere else in the series other than maybe like new nightmare to me was, you know, definitely, definitely more so of you're never really safe. Um, but here, and I think part of it, and I kind of want to get into one of like the new additions to the concept. Here was the the addition of micro naps makes oh. this terrifying. The because in, in the first one, you know, as sleep is something we all need to do, but as long as you can hold it off, there's always that shred of hope. But the idea that regardless of the fact you're standing up and walking around, your body will actively fight against you and shut down, causing you to to dream while standing. You you are never safe. There's like whether it's sunshine and bright outside, there's never a moment once you get to a certain level of sleep deprivation where there's any sense of security. And so to me, that was one of the things I was always able to rely on with the original series is like, okay, it's daylight, I'm good. But here, um, it's like, no, you get to a certain point. Like it's yeah, I think it's the marker you said after after the um who who was it who died who, that you mentioned uh either chris or i forget what her uh, boyfriend yeah. was es- oh. especially when he dies um from then on there's never really a moment where you can like finally breathe again um no. it's just constantly holding you on the edge of your seat and it's not breaking its own rules he's still killing them in dreams so the fact that they can still kind of play with you the way another scary movie would do where it's like oh you know Jason doesn't need dreams to kill someone well Freddy needs him but he's still able to chase you like Jason would now like we're still acting completely within the confines of our own rules but we are scaring you in ways the series never has well I think that that and um that plus the concept of um, when Freddy says, once you die, the brain's still active for six oh, minutes. Man. So um, those those two small concepts 
really add a lot to the mythology. Um, and they're, and they're, you know, I wish, again, I wish they'd pushed that more and I wish the movie had been more received because I would have liked a sequel to explore some of that. But, um, but I love the idea of, you know, just for six minutes, you know, when you're getting these 30 second sequences to, to imagine six minutes with Freddy Krueger, that's, that's terrifying. You know, it's, it's the same thing as when at the end we're, you know, it's, he basically implies Nancy's going to be in a coma. So, you know, she's his now. That's, I mean, that stuff is, that's terrifying. And I think that's a great, while they kept all the spirit of the original, they added those little touches that just made Freddy so much more scary. Yeah. Um, I guess to, to, to go into the climax, um, I mean, first off, how, like the scariest scene or most disturbing scene in the movie is without Freddy when they when they find his secret cave. Um, yeah, I, I'm almost wondering do do you think they went too far? I mean, it, I I have a lot of respect for the restraint that was shown. Like it's all inferred. Like we don't need to see the pictures. We yeah. just just watching Rooney Mara just collapse and scream and you you yeah. know you don't so I really admire the restraint there but I'm always kind of this is kind of an issue I have with Split as well I'm always kind of concerned when you have what is you know kind of a, just a schlocky horror film pull you know try and go somewhere that is 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 very real and is so dark and it affects so many people unfortunately do you do you, do you, like do you think movies have the right to do that like that just to to like i i have no issue with how it's handled i'm just kind of worried about like do should they even be using it like this should like should the topic be presented like i mean if you if if you if if it's just for you know a silly horror film that's not gonna that's not really a deep analysis into child molestation like i, I, well, obviously, I think obviously nightmare on Elm street is a deep analysis of you know it's always been a deep analysis of abuse, suicide. I mean, if you look down the list, I mean, the first one is heavy on, you know, fill in the blank. You know, it can be applied to any kind of teenage angst. You have part two, which is about, you know, sexual frustration. You have part three, which deals with suicide, drug addiction. Um, you know, part five, dealing with unplanned pregnancy. I, the series has always gone to these very taboo subjects and approach them even in the sillier movies approach them in a very serious and very analytical way um you know as much as we might laugh at the silliness of of dream child and i'll be the first to admit as someone who loves it it's a silly movie but the scenes where she's in the hospital getting the ultrasound she they play that like any teen mom would be Mm -hmm. and so i think in this in this movie it deals it handles that topic so delicately, but they, you know, I mean, there's only so much, if you're going to introduce that topic, there's only so much you can do to dance around it because child molestation means child molestation. So we know what kind of guy he was. We know, you know, I think the line is showing if they had gone further than what they did, I think they could have crossed a line. Um, and with that case, they couldn't have gone further just because it would have been children. So you can't show on film what's going on. But I, th- I think the way they handled it was very it, – it wasn't – you know, I think what they saved themselves was by not making him so likable and jokey that 
they didn't make him sort of an anti-hero, which he kind of becomes in a weird way in the original series. They they showed him for what he was. Um, yeah, I think I think the way they handled it was was appropriate. Um, and I don't think it was there for shock value. You know what I mean? I, I don't. I think the difference between this movie is the way that heavily hints at repressed memories of abuse, as opposed to like, you know, I. I it's hard because there's not a lot of movies that deal with this topic in this genre. Um, but the best way I could explain it is there's horror movies that deal with the topic of rape. And I, and I think they deal with it in an appropriate way. Um, and then there's horror movies where there's a rape sequence, like Rob Zombie's Halloween remake. There's a rape sequence for the purpose of shocking. And I think that's where it crossed the lines where you take a, you know, I think where you take a situation of sexual or, or, you know, sexual abuse or any kind of abuse and use it for shock rather than for, um, you know, commentary Mm -hmm. on the world. And, um, you know, I think nightmare really plays that really well. Um, it it makes you ask questions about how you would respond to that situation rather than, you know, again, I think crossing the line, uh, I know I'm repeating myself, but I think crossing the line is when you're doing something for shock or for, you know, even worse for, you know, just titillation, you know, with, with rape or molestation. I think with this movie, they show it as evil and there's nothing by the end of that movie, there's nothing redeemable about Freddy Krueger mm-hmm. or what he did. There's nothing. And I think if they'd, I think if they tried to make him redeemable at the end, I think it would have ruined everything. That's, that would have been crossing a line uh, in my opinion. Yeah. Another thing is like, at least like with this and split is that both of them ultimately whether you like the films or not, they they are intended as, I guess you know, a message of empowerment and freedom. Um, yes. So yeah, I guess even if you have quibbles with the um, with some of the handling, I think I, I I at least respect that the the filmmakers' hearts I think were in the right place. Yeah. No, I definitely agree. I I saw a complaint um in a review. I was reading and <laughs> watching a lot of reviews, and I saw a complaint from someone that said you know. Michael Bay and his production company, because that's the go-to excuse, Michael Bay and his production company weren't prepared to handle its topic like this. But I, I, I don't think it was tossed around lightly at all. Oh, no. um, you know, I, again, I think there's certain people that probably, again, it's the same thing as themes of rape or any other horrific event. There's probably people that shouldn't watch this movie, mm-hmm. um, that it would be very triggering for them. But I think there's also... Um, you know, I think for mainstream audiences, I think the way it dealt with the topic, you know, the the scene, there could have been filmmakers that would have taken the scene with Rooney Mara in the little girl's dress and they would have played that scene and, you know, made it more sexual or made it where it would be, you know, it, you know, exploitive. But that whole scene, my skin is just crawling and I just want it to end and I want her to, to take him down. You know, it, it wasn't a scene where you're saying you know, they didn't try to push in, you know, unnecessary nudity for a character. They didn't try to push in more. They just let it, they let subtext be king. And I think that's really important with topics like that. Yeah. This does kind of remind me of the conversation we had with Split. And to me, what, why I am not upset at either film is that it's not a one-off. It's not something that's mentioned and let go. It's, it's the driving force. It's very important to these characters and their arcs. This, like, like you say, empowerment and conquering of this thing. It is, it is very encouraging. It's not like, 
look at this. Here's, you know, th- this is shock value. This is meant to really startle you. You didn't think we'd go here, did you? It's, yeah. it is very much, this happened to people because it yeah. happened to these characters just like it happens to people in real life. And while the characters in this film may overcome this, you know, in a way that is quite literally impossible for people who have, who have unfortunately experienced this in real life, it is still a message about overcoming that um, and, you know, coming out victorious over it. And, and like you said, the, the hearts were of, of both movies were in the right place. And I think they did handle it very tastefully as, as tasteful as this kind of concept could be handled um so i i i'm very hesitant to say there's really topics film should just stay away from i think oh, no, film I, 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 I wasn't saying that <laughs> yeah i i definitely i think i do agree with you now that you've kind of explained it that way eric but I, what i was saying was more of like kind of a sh- more more schlocky horror film <laughs> Oh, yeah, and, sure. and that's why I think this movie gets away with it. Um, it's not schlocky. You know what I mean? I think that's where this – I think what you're saying is totally valid. And, and, I, and I think there's even been, you know, well-made uh, – I think Rob Zombie's Halloween is a well-made movie. But the rape sequence in that movie is so unnecessary and so jarring. And it's, it doesn't say anything about rape. It doesn't say anything about – abuse it doesn't say it's not saying anything it's just showing rape to shock to say oh there's a scene that's so shocking you know what i mean and and what west craven always pushed the envelope he always showed shocking sequences but they always said something about our culture they always said something about human nature it was never you know it was never sex for sex you know purpose it wasn't you know or set or violence for violence sake or you know anything like that I, I think this movie gets gets away with it because they don't they're not doing it to hyper sexualize anybody there's actually no no one sexualized in this movie at all um you know even again it comes down to a different filmmaker when they say okay there's a scene where a teen girl gets into a tub and freddy krueger's arm comes out how many horror filmmakers would have said, okay, we're going to do a, a two-minute nude scene walking to the tub? They don't do that. Mm-hmm. They maintain this childlike quality about Rooney Mara where all you're thinking about is don't fall asleep. You know what I mean? Like, And that, that speaks volumes about the filmmaker that you know, even as a 15-year-old guy, I never thought about that scene as a sexual scene. I was terrified that she was going to fall asleep. And that shows so much restraint on the part of the filmmaker to not – go overboard and and you know going back to the idea of did they go too far i would argue the most you know sexually violating image in the whole series is in the very first film is that is that gloved bladed hand coming up in the water in between her legs i mean the 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 metaphor there is is obvious um Mm -hmm. and i think you know i think that that's terrifying and that and that's a that's a that's a trope that even in the even in the Friday the Thirteenth series, there's this idea of being violated and and the empowerment to fight back against it. Um, you know, there were schlocky filmmakers that made Friday the Thirteenth movies that put things in for shock, but they couldn't escape that message of there's still going to be a final girl, there's still going to be a girl that's going to 
take a machete and stab it through this aggressor that's been attacking people. There's always that message of empowerment that's in the horror genre. And I think that's, I think when a talented filmmaker steps into it and takes those tropes and really plays them out, you know, like Wes Craven did over and over again with New Nightmare, with Nightmare on Elm Street, you see how powerful that genre can be, you know? And and I don't know many genres that could handle a topic like child molestation, like the horror genre, you know, I, I think dramas would try and you know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. there, I think that, you know, other, other genres could really try action movies could try, but horror because it's so metaphorical and because it's so symbolic in its storytelling, it can talk about topics that could never be discussed, you know, verbally in any other movie. And I think Nightmare on Elm Street is, you know, I mean, that's, that is a shining example of a series that takes difficult topics, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street three was suicide, you know, how in such a fun, goofy movie, how seriously it took that topic is, is incredible. And, and I think that stuck with the franchise, even at sillier installments and is still there in the remake. Um, and I, I don't know if that's just the strength of the, the concept that Wes Craven came up with, or if that's something, you know, deep within all of us that we understand, and it comes through filmmakers accidentally, but you know, I more often than not, I, I see films like this handle topics like that so well. Yeah, and just one more thing, just about you know the power of restraint in these contexts is like the two most disturbing sequences of this film, um, which are some of the most disturbing things I've seen in any film, are those two the scenes like where we don't see the pictures, we just see her reaction, or yeah. when he has her tied to the bed. We don't have to see him do anything to her. All we have to do is you know, that yeah. line he, that he's just been playing her. He's only been trying to get her more and more scared to where he doesn't want to kill her. He just wants her. Yeah. I was just like curled up in a blanket, like rocking back and forth while watching this film because it, it, it is so disturbing without showing things. You don't need to show that stuff. Yeah. And a less talented filmmaker would have. Yeah. They would have they would have said, We have to show a rape scene. We have to show but the violation uh, the ultimate symbol of violation is that he's in their dreams. Their, their most private moment is their dreams. And he's already there. Um to actually violate them physically wouldn't even compare. You know what I mean? Maybe visually that would have been more shocking. But if you want to look just philosophically, the idea of being in someone's personal thoughts is far more terrifying than, you know, where they could have taken certain scenes. Yeah. And how effective was that reveal when you finally realize what his intention was? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's not really a lot I could say that y'all haven't already said really well, but that was also something that I, I had noticed with this was it's it's restraint in a lot of aspects. Um, you know, there's there's no nudity. This is a slasher with no nudity. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, and even beyond that, like, no, like you said, no one's really sexualized. There's nothing like that. It's it's not using cheap ways to get people in the seats. And one of the most, uh, or one one of the things that you said, and I think that's just a testament to my how a testament to how focused this movie is, and it it knows that this is a horror movie. This we shouldn't be here for any other reason uh, is the scene when she's getting into the bathtub. Even, you know, all the 15 year old boys there, at least 
me, whenever I watch this at age like 13 or however old I was, you're not thinking, oh, I hope the camera pans up. You're thinking exactly what you say. Oh, crap, I hope she doesn't fall asleep. Like, the intention of the movie is never lost. It's never like, oh, here's here's a quick scene with, you know, these teenagers having sex. Like, it's just, it's it always is here for a reason. Um, and even with the gore, like, this is a gory movie. It's rated R and it earned it. But it's never like, well, let's see, you know, like, well, the, the original series did this. Let's top it. You know, it's very restrained. <laughs> it's kind of weird that you can say a, a film that features someone slicing their throat from one end to the other is restrained. But the way it does yeah. it feels very much like it. So, yeah, like with, whether it's the violence or um, the act, the incredibly heavy topic of the film itself or kind of the expectations of sexual uh, sexuality that's already placed on it simply by being a slasher it's very focused on what it is and what it's here to be about. And it's never like it in, in these regards, it's never like, well, let's throw a scene to pander to the, to the teenage boys in the audience, or let's really get gory with this. It's based on the concept. You have to get gory, but they do what's necessary for the scene. They don't try like, well, an extra bucket of blood or let's do, let's do this. Well, when you show everything, nothing shocking. You know, and I, th- I think, you know, I, I love the Saw franchise, you know, as, a, as someone that loves special effects, I, as a different, as a different animal, I love, I love the Saw franchise and I, and I, and there's some bad, terrible movies in that franchise, but, um, but what's powerful about the first film and, uh, upon rewatch it this year, I, I had never realized that they never show him actually cutting his leg off, um, at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, um, but um, I never realized they didn't show that. I, I pictured that. When I look back on that movie, I said, I remember them showing him cutting through the – I read this long, drawn-out sequence. But the reason I have such a vivid and like kind of like scared memory of certain scenes in that movie is because when James Wan did show something, it was legitimately um, – it was legitimately shocking. You know, and and in the latter films in the franchise, you know, they showed everything. So then when you saw someone's head explode from three different angles, it just didn't do anything emotionally. And I I think Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, the new one, I think because they showed so many scenes where they hinted at things, when they did show him jam a knife into his neck, it's shocking. Or when they do show, you know the claws come through her stomach when she's lifting the air or when they, when they decide to like hit you, they hit you hard. Um, cause I mean, movies that just keep throwing stuff at you, you know, eventually you're going to say there's no stakes. There's nothing that's going to catch me off guard because they're giving me everything in the kitchen sink. Um, you reach the point I of diminishing was, returns pretty quickly. Yeah. And that's, that's an issue I have with, you know, with a lot of modern blockbusters is you have this, you know, to throw out, throw out the Avengers is you have this nameless faceless army at the end of the film where, you know, you're seeing a different creature get torn apart, you know, in different slow motion, cool ways. But they're bad guys. They deserve but, it. But say, yeah. <laughs> so they're bad guys. They deserve it. Yeah. But, but, and, and yeah, and it's, it's cool. But there's no real weight to when – you know what I mean? When someone dies in Nightmare on Elm Street, it means something. When someone dies in most movies, 
it's an extra effect. You know what I mean? And and I think that's where movies lose their, you know, they may be beautiful to look at. And some of my favorite movies fall into that category. But the best movies, the ones that will always be remembered is The Exorcist, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nightmare Now. Movies where the kill count is very, very low, but the concept is so terrifying that when they show you that two seconds of film, it sticks with you forever. And uh, and I think the new the new movie really stays faithful to that. Yeah. Um, one concept I did want to bring up before we close is that nearly all the negative reviews complain about how they reuse and repurpose, you know, classic scenes from the original. Of course they do. Um, yeah. Like, so do, <laughs> I get, what, what do y'all think? Like, it seems to be the common notion about just about remakes in general is like, if it's not something completely original to this film, it is automatically undeniably unquestionably bad. Um, what do y'all have to say about that? It's like it permeated all of the reaction to this film. Like any review you read, they'll complain about how oh it's just stupid that you just reuse scenes. What do you do? You view that as a bad thing at all? You know what really annoys me about that is if they didn't, that would have been the complaint. You know, yeah, we're, yeah, we were waiting exactly. for all of these iconic moments, and the film like you have this rich history to draw from. The the issue people had with this film was that it was a remake in general. And so when it reuses something, that's a flaw. When it doesn't, that's – or if it didn't, that would have been a flaw. They they were just yeah. ready to hate it. Um, well, I'm, I'm from the camp of if it's not broke, don't fix it, you know, which which might explain my love for the Friday the 13th franchise because <laughs> they, they pretty much repeat the formula each film. Um you know, that's a prime example of fans getting upset when they do try to do something different like Jason X or something like that. Uh, fans say, well, I want Jason in Camp Crystal Lake with this many counselors doing the exact same kills. Um, with Nightmare on Elm Street, I think it's the same thing. I think people said – I think what you said, James, is exactly right is if they hadn't had the scene with the girl being lifted out of the bed and tossed around the room, people would have been furious. And if they had taken it out of the movie you know, or if they had kept in the movie like they did – People still got upset, you know. Um, what I have mixed feelings about this. Um, to answer your question, Gabe, is, is um, my mixed feelings are I think there were scenes they redid or, or tweaked to have different elements um, that made it really interesting um, or they added new things entirely. Like I think the swimming pool nightmare is really creative. I think the, the cafe is really creative. Um, what bothered me is that uh, – so for example, the girl that gets lifted out of the bed, it bothered me that they went more – they didn't do it the same way they did the original film. It looks a little more CG than the, the older film and I know that argument gets old. But but the original film feels – that holds up so well. Um, that's the one scene in the movie that I think if you did that same scene the same way now, it would still work. Yeah. Um, I didn't care for that. Um, but what I loved about that scene is they took the technology they have now and did the claws through the stomach and all in one take. And it was a really visceral and brutal kill. Um, you know, the, the other scene where they took a scene and tweaked it enough where it was interesting, but still hit the kind of nostalgia button was the scene where Freddy Krueger comes out of the wallpaper behind Nancy's bed. Now in the in the remake, I hate how they did that. Um, I I I hate the really bad gooey wallpaper CGI. Mm-hmm. 
um, I think the first film holds up again. It holds up perfectly with the the latex wall um, and him just pushing through. Um, but what I love about that scene is that the director included a shot of of the water, the perspiration on her glass, and the droplet starting to move up as she entered into the dream. Mm-hmm up the side of the glass. And then when she wakes up, she glances over the glass and the droplet starts going back down. And it it was such, the scene is exactly the same beat for beat with not as great effects in the remake, but he added those two shots that completely told their own story and, and added a ton to the scene where it felt fresh and new, you know, um, the one scene I think they actually improved was when she's running at the end of the film and she, her feet start sticking to the floor. Yeah. Because I, I always thought that was an effect that didn't work in the first movie was the little holes cut out in the steps and then like the pudding or whatever <laughs> was under there. Um, I think in this one with it turning into like a bloody gooey substance was really effective. And she's so literally I, drowning I, in it. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I go back and forth. And and again, like two or three of the movies on my best tour films of all time are remakes. Um, Hills of Eyes, Evil Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And all those movies – do a really good job of balancing new and old scenes. Um, you know, I think the worst crime you can commit is completely retreading, but I think the other bad crime is totally abandoning everything that made the first movie so special. And I, I think this movie hits that sweet spot where it, it covers what you want to see and what you expect, and then gives you some new turns on it. As you say, yeah, it, to me, it's, it's all in execution. Um, it's not inherently bad to, quote unquote, recreate a scene. And it's not inherently bad to ditch it, to do your own idea. It's all about execution. Um, And I I agree with what you're saying where with with the first one to me, because they didn't have as much stuff to show off and be as flashy. And I I already mentioned it, just the the scene of her being dragged across the ceiling is terrifying. Oh, it's so, so creepy. Um, my goodness, I completely forgot. This is uh, uh, one of the scenes that really got me watching the original first was the latex wall, seeing just this imprint of him slowly push through because it looked real. There was a, a it, tangible... It, is, qual- it, it works still because yeah. it was real. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it's a tangible effect. And in this one, this weird liquidy thing moving around, it just looked super weird and fake. It's terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah terrible. I, I don't like that. Uh, at all but yeah and the, the scene in which she's running away that like that feels very real to nightmares with this inability to move like you're working as hard as you can but you either your legs won't move or in this case you know, like you're you're in this goop that won't let you go regardless of how much you push and so you become this helpless victim and the fact that a movie can capture that that feeling you would have in that kind of nightmare of just being entirely helpless and a victim to what's to come there, there are some moments in which this movie is able to utilize technology in a great way. And so while it stumbles in like a couple moments, I, the, the idea of reusing it isn't inherently bad because like we both agreed, there are a couple moments where it's, it's an improvement. So it's yeah. all an execution. Oh, I think, and I think speaking of the topic of remakes and I won't grandstand for another 10 minutes, but um, I think, I think the, um, the one thing that, you said that's that's really true and I think can be said of remakes is that there is nothing there uh, I forget how you worded it but but essentially there's no 
definitively wrong or right thing to do when it comes to filmmaking. There, There is no, you know, there's been movies that I thought there's no way. Star, Star Wars Force Awakens, I thought there's no way that they're going to make a movie that captures the feeling of those original films and yet takes in a new direction. And, and they did it because they executed it so well. Um, you know, or when they announced that there's going to be whatever film, you know what I mean? There's, there's movies where you think that's a terrible, terrible idea. The, the Annabelle, the Annabelle, uh, creation, uh, movie. That's a movie where I thought you're going to take a bad movie and you're going to give it a prequel and, try to make like it sounded ludicrous and and then you watch the film and you have a talented director great writers incredible cast and you have one of the best films of 2017 i i I think it's an incredible movie um i i think the the number one thing that people need to remember is you can't go into a movie saying this can't be done you know, Wes Craven shopped his script around for the original Nightmare for so long before someone would be willing to do it. And, you know, I, I think he proved over and over again that these bizarre concepts that aren't popular, that have never been done before, can be done well if given the right team. Um, so I, I love what you were saying about just, you know, I think that hits the whole remake discussion right on the head is – you know, there is no set guideline for what you should or shouldn't do. You just have to do it well. Yeah. Like for me, the more I study like like literature and learn about like storytelling, a history of storytelling, the less I care about originality as a concept. Um, There is no original. Yeah. So for me, obviously I will give more praise to the person who thought up this scene first. Yes. But still, an effective scene is not accident. Even if you are completely recreating a scene someone someone else made, unless you know what you're doing, you're a good filmmaker with good actors and good, and you know, and, and making a good scene. That scene that you're completely recreating will be bad. And it's like these these scenes exactly. So and all those scenes, I think, minus the weird Play-Doh wallpaper, is they're all effective scenes that work in context of this film. So sure, I'm not gonna gush over them because I've seen them before, but I can't say that is bad. Well, have you, have you guys ever seen the, um, not to digress too much. Have you ever seen the 1990 shot for shot remake of psycho? No. Mm-mm. Okay. So that is a fascinating experiment. Okay. So, so Gus Van Sant created a, um, a shot for shot remake of Alfred Hitchcock's original film in color set in the Mm nineties. Okay. And so it's the exact same film, same score, same visuals, same story. And the movie is, is unwatchable. It is so bad, but it's literally just a matter of the execution. Like it's, and it's, you can literally say it's, it's, it wasn't Alfred Hitchcock doing that movie. And it, and some bad casting, Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates in the film. Um, (laughs) but, but, um, it's a really interesting thing that speaks to that is that props to the original guy that could make something so effective because so many times you see people try to recreate that lightning in a bottle and they just can't even with a shot for shot movie like psycho it's it's insane it's really crazy but it it also kind of proves the point to where because that psycho remake exists and is terrible 
you now know that whenever you see a scene reused and is good, it's not good because of the original. At least not entirely. Because we have definitive proof here that reuse doesn't guarantee good. If it's good, regardless of lack of originality, it's good because it was in good hands. And I just need to say this. I need to get this on my chest because it's the dumbest thing I've ever heard is that people who say, oh, it ruined the original for me. (laughs) Shut up, okay? Because there's – if you don't like a new movie or a sequel – okay, I love the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love the remake of the original – I love the sequel to the remake of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I hate Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. It didn't affect Texas Chainsaw Massacre at all. That's still a good movie. So people that say that Nightmare on Elm Street damaged the legacy of the series, shut up, okay? (laughs) Even if you didn't like the movie, it has no bearing on the quality of the movie you watched before. I just needed to say that really quick. Amen. Because there's a lot of people that say that when remakes come out. It it drives me crazy. So anyway, just throwing that out there. That's free. Uh, We're going to be going super long. There's a couple things I wanted to mention. Um, Just – to praise the uh, Bayer's direction, uh, just little moments like the uh, the scene at the uh, the the store where where he's going to get the prescription drugs, and uh, when she when uh, Nancy's attacked by Freddy, and he's chasing her down the aisle and is flashing back oh, and forth so between the uh, yeah. the store and uh, the basement. It's just like it's such a simple concept, but it's so beautifully executed. Um, then little things like, uh, the computer sleep mode going on (laughs) to signify she's falling asleep. Uh, I totally forgot about that until I rewatched it recently. I I totally forgot that existed. It's just simple yet brilliant. Um, and finally the, uh, I love the, uh, we're obviously since it's, it's in the two thousands, they're going to go online. Like, you know, they're studying the, the effects of sleep deprivation and all that. And then finding the video blog of a kid that we've never met before, but who's one of the, one of his abuse victims. And you see like the different video blogs as he's just getting more and more exhausted until the end. And you just like, this is what's going to happen to you now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. My only gripe with that scene is who uploaded the last video. Uh, live stream. Uh, why you got to do that? <laughs> live stream. Okay. Okay. Full disclosure, uh, you guys. Um, you just ruined – thank you for ruining that moment for me forever. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I never, ever, 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 ever thought – and I've seen Saw so many times. And I never questioned why Jigsaw was in the room the whole time. And when I listened to your guys' <laughs> podcast and you said that – I, I just wanted to like slam my car into the nearest light pole because I was like so frustrated that I never thought about it because that scene always worked really well for me. And uh, and I was like, yeah, he wants a front row seat to the game. And then I was like – and then you said his eyes were closed and I was like, <laughs> the the underrated podcast is just killing me. And then I thought – started thinking about the sequels because they show that he takes a drug to slow his heart rate down, which covers the no breathing thing by the way. But then I was thinking – he, but then I was saying, he's unconscious. He's not even just like closing his eyes and listening. He's like out, like asleep. And uh, anyway, so you, thank you. You guys have just ruined two pinnacle moments of my uh, You're welcome. my love for horror. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Mission accomplished. 
But it's still a great twist. I still think it's a really interesting twist. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, do you, are there any other little bits y'all guys want to mention before we move into our uh, final thoughts? Because this is going pretty long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, uh, just, I mean, I, I don't... Um, I, I would love to finish this without mentioning anything too negative. But I did want to mention how I despise this ending. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, For me, whatever, Eric, earlier, whenever you were saying something that Wes Craven's always done and that this movie did a good job mimicking is providing hope. I, Mm -hmm. I want and still do like nod in agreement to that. But it's my issue with the very first one and it's my issue with this one where... The, the whole movie is like, there's it's still possible. Nancy makes it. Both Nancys make it. And to end it the way it does, it's like he's holding... It ruins the whole purpose. Yeah, he's yeah. holding this match in front of you. Like, look, there's light here. And then it's just like, fingers closed on the match, lights out, we're done. Like, okay. any hope... Okay, you, you, you've got to watch um, Never Sleep Again. Because Wes Craven fought tooth and nail against that ending. Oh, um, that makes me he, he, feel much, much better. He hated the idea of Freddy coming back at the end because in his mind he was defeated and um, it was pushed for by Bob Shea and new line. They said, we have to have a hook for a sequel. We have to have a hook for a sequel. And Wes Craven wanting to get this first big movie made said, you know, that's where I compromised and I hated shooting that scene. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so what, what, what's crazy is in the remake though, they kept that <laughs> like new line learned nothing <laughs> From West Craven. And what's so horrible about it is the film has set up these perfect rules that it abides by the whole time and uh, for no reason yeah. breaks them in the end and, and you know, squashing this beautifully laid hope. Like, I mean, it's a great kill. Don't get me wrong. It's a really cool little kill, but it sucks in the context of the movie. It's better than pulling the mo- the, the blow-up doll through the <laughs> I stop. I stopped the movie before we get there. <laughs> I hate – I can't even imagine how that – got okayed all the way through the editing process and put on screen. Yeah. Cause that is such a good movie with such a bad dummy at the end where they like hold a little bit too long right before it gets pulled through. So you're just staring at this <laughs> dummy. Oh, it's so bad. But I know like I, I was sending James, irate uh text when the first one ended and I was sending you, Eric is just like, I'm just like fuming, like pacing on like, because the ending, especially the second one is so perfect because like oh. all they have to do, they're just in the ambulance and they can sleep. That is so powerful. Yes. Yeah. And, they could have ended it just panning up into the sky. It's all over. But, you know, but yeah, no, but the, it's so bad. No, in the, the, what's frustrating about the originals, they didn't even do a life cast of the actress. So it's just some random dummy <laughs> that they had left over from an earlier kill. That they just put a wig on. It's no it, one will uh, notice. Oh my goodness. It's so bad. And and the more higher definition videos you watch, I mean on VHS, I'm sure it looked a little better. But man, when you're watching it in like HD on your computer or on your TV, it is so bad. It makes me sad. So thanks, guys. We're just going to talk about the ending of Saw. Just ruin one after the other. Let's talk about Texas Chainsaw now. Let's just – what's wrong with that? Yeah, I, Nothing. I, I, Nothing's wrong. I, I'm good at <laughs> compartmentalization so I can kind of cut the ending away from the film. Yeah. But if I had to watch these as a – like think of them as a whole product, both those endings fully and completely ruin those movies. Yeah. Thankfully, I can think of them separately. Yeah. But uh, 
I, I don't understand why they would keep that in the sequel. It's it's, it's just such a gimmick of the genre. This, yeah. Well, what what started it was Carrie, because um, Carrie had the little dream sequel. Don't tell me, I haven't seen it. <laughs> oh, Carrie's so good. Um, um, but anyway, but the, and then Friday Thirteenth did that, and it became this thing where you have this jump scare. You know what I mean? And so with, uh, but with Night, see. But again, that's when you watch like Never Sleep Again and you watch Bob Shea, you know, the owner of New Line at the time and the way he pushed for these sequels, uh, you like love him and hate him because without that hook, you don't have – you never get to Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which is my favorite in the franchise. And you never get New Night. So you, but the, you like the, have they to take this crap it, though, in the sequels. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's what's so I, frustrating. It's where, but, but to show that he still exists, though, because he still exists in part two, and they carry right up to where they move into Nancy's old house. But New Line originally thought the house was the hero of the story. Not, they didn't realize Freddy Krueger or Robert England was what the driving force was. <laughs> so it's just you guys need to watch the documentary. It's so interesting. Yeah, the, I, the I contradiction of ideas. Oh, it's so good. Just the little details – I know I'm just rambling now, but Wes Craven like based the sweater off reading in this like scientific journal that red and green, a certain hue, are like the most perfect oppos- opposing colors. So he said, oh, I'll make a sweater this like disorienting red and green. and It's so interesting. You, you got to watch. It's so it's so cool. Yeah. But um, – so- Anything else at all before we uh, start moving <laughs> to close? <laughs> On that note, that's the episode. So, no, um, I think that's it. I think we've covered – I mean we've given this movie far more praise than anyone has probably ever given it. So Probably. Good for, good for us. There's a, I mean there's a couple of moments I won't bring up other than just naming them real quick. I think him walking through the pharmacy and having like the aisles blur as he walks down. Yeah, uh, super was cool. a really cool effect, kind of mimicking the way everything looks blurry when you're tired and kind of having to wipe it away from your eyes. So, and then I, I was going to bring it up, but you already did the whole the the droplet on the glass moving up and then back down. There's lots of really cool attention uh, moments of attention to detail like that. So, not to talk about any of that at length, but there's there's a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, so let's uh, move into our final thoughts. Um, why don't we uh, start with you, James? So my my final thoughts are that uh, I'm going to try to not use this as just a chance to get on a soapbox and condemn everybody who hates remakes just because they're dogmatic about it. I, I think that judging this movie by its own merit and actually really critically thinking about it, which is something I'm convinced nobody else watching this movie did, you will realize this is a very, very good movie. It has an absolutely fantastic lead villain who is terrifying every moment he's on screen it is given a surprising amount of depth um its story is very character driven and very character focused there's an attention to detail that goes above and beyond what was required it doesn't rehash things it is its very own thing it's never exploitive it never other than the ending ever feels like it falls into the more unfortunate trappings of the genre. It is just a very, very competent uh, film that does so much more than was asked of it. And it does a great job of celebrating the series while being its own thing. So very good movie. Recheck it out and try to not judge it before you press play. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Eric? Uh, I just want to go after people that don't like remakes. Um, just do it. <laughs> 
I want to give in to my worst instincts and just indulge. Um, but no, I, I no, I echo what you said. I give it a chance. I don't think you, as someone that watched this movie first, I don't think you need to divorce it from the rest of the franchise. It, like I said, it doesn't affect the series that we know and love. It doesn't. It's just a good movie that takes a great premise that should be, you know, looked at again. The fact that there hasn't been a ton of other ripoffs of this concept that I'm aware of. I'm sure there have been, but the fact that there aren't as many as you'd expect is pretty strange. Um, that no one's really gone into this dream area is pretty crazy. Um, the the other thing I'll say too, just in the remake respect as well, is you know one thing I appreciate about these films is that they're they're proof that you know they do introduce audiences to older films that they probably would never have checked out earlier, you know, without watching nightmare on Elm street or without watching Texas chainsaw massacre or the new, um, Hills have eyes or the new, um, evil or, uh, no, I watched that after, but, uh, but all these films that are really solid remakes, they pushed me, you know, I wouldn't know who Robert England is at all. If I hadn't seen Jackie Earl Haley play this creepy character. And so, um, I, I respect and appreciate the movie and, um, you know, it's just, I just wish Hollywood would make, I, I'm not on the, everything needs to be an original bandwagon. I just wish Hollywood would make, you know, if they're going to make the same films, just make them good. And I think Nightmare on Elm Street's a prime example of a movie that's just good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's remakes that are bad and this isn't one of them, um, you know, I, I know there's some behind the scenes production stuff that we didn't get into about this movie that, you know, where actors and directors and things were all butting heads. But I, you know, I think the power of the director to pull together the movie he did is is pretty incredible. And, you know, it's one of the reasons, I mean, this movie, to be honest, ranks pretty high in the franchise for me. Yeah, I like I am completely baffled by the critical reception of this film. I mean, like I like say BVS. I love it. I can understand why someone who's connected to the original oh, it's super will dislike it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a different kind of film. This here, like reading the reviews, like they talk about oh, horrible acting, horrible direction. Like, what what, <laughs> what did you what did you watch? Yeah, bad cinematography. Are you joking? It, it's like yeah. they're they're like reading through Letterboxd. It's like eighty percent of them are like a half star to two star reviews, and they feel oh. they feel so copy pasted. Like they're. Every one of them hits the same ridiculous and like objectively uh, false talking points. I just, oh, I know it's it's. I I firmly believe these people <clears throat> decided they hated this movie long before they ever saw it. And oh and yeah, absolutely. you can convince yourself to dislike a movie if you want to, and just because. I mean, I, that's like I, you I, I don't with want to insult, Street Dream Child. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't want to insult our audience who might not like it, but by any you know objective standard, like what what do we judge films by? You know, this film has a, a, a good good acting, great direction, a good a fantastic villain, and a plot and a wonderful soundtrack. Yeah, it's just a, a plot and themes that are so tightly woven together, and they and they every aspect of the film builds on its ideas and themes and it all comes together beautifully in the end i mean this is a good film i mean i don't know i don't know so yeah oh yeah i mean stroke if, talking if, about this movie if you watched it before and you hated it just let go of what you think a nightmare on elm street film has to be let go let of your go of your anger yeah, like 
a, a, a remake is not bad because it's a remake, okay? Just watch the movie and appreciate what it is and what it does right, which is a whole freaking lot. Yeah. <laughs> and sorry, I just have to throw out one more thing. But Steve Jablonski's redo of Charles Bernstein's Nightmare Theme is super, super rad and is actually better than the original score. Sorry, not sorry. It's super good. And the atmosphere of the title sequence is so creepy. The, the <laughs> 80s was so. a rough time for film scores. Okay, no, okay, fight on that. Synthesizers but we'll get to that are not. A different time. Stop it. Don't say that. Don't say No, 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 no. Okay, anyway, let's end on a positive note where we all agree. All right, so that was our review of the remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, again, I'd like to ask you to please go and rate review us on iTunes and go like us on Facebook. We are there as Underrated Podcast. And if you want to find our older episodes, you can go to underratedpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are underrated underscore pod. All right. And I want to give you one last chance to, uh, you know, plug whatever you you want off on here, Eric. Oh, or, man. Um, or just where they can find you. I need a, I need to have a website. Um, <laughs> my website just went down. Um, well, you can find me on Instagram. At Eric Skorzynski. I'm sure my name's in the description, so you don't have to try to scramble to find that. Um, um, well, you know what? Why not? Connect with me through um, the Feeling Film uh, Facebook group, uh, Popcorn Theologies group, uh, Shockwaves Horror Club. I'm in like basically every movie group you can imagine. Um, and uh, sure, if I'm going to plug something, I just directed a horror-themed commercial uh, for Gosh Ford Hemet, G-O-S-C-H Ford Hemet on facebook you should check that out it's kind of slashery and cool so yeah sure i'll plug that why not it's funny not i liked it i should have plugged a charity or something but <laughs> yeah my commercial's cool so yeah all right um and so uh, next week is uh, my pick and uh i want to do uh, tom cruise's oblivion it came out i think uh 2013 if i'm not mistaken uh it, i think it's a really fun sci-fi film that i got way more hate than it deserved like this one um so yeah, that's what we will be doing next week. So until next week with Oblivion, we will see you next time. See ya. Again. Yeah.